everyone wants to get more sleep, and there are a ton of different sleep hacks out there, noise machines, meditation, earplugs, which I do, but you can immediately transform your sleep with Bowl & Branch. We have Bowl & Branch sheets in our house. They're in white. They are so soft. In fact, we say all the time, but they really do get softer with every wash. And the sheets also come in a really pretty box, kind of wrapped up like a present just for you. They feel buttery and breathable to start. And again, as Motion and I always say, they get softer with every wash. Best of all, it feels a little bit luxurious every time you slip into bed. These best-selling sheets are also made with the finest 100% organic cotton. They are completely free from toxins, soft yet super breathable. There's a 30-night worry-free guarantee so you can wash them, style them, and sleep in them for an entire month. And if you don't really love them, you could send them back right away. And again, they're made without toxins. There's no synthetic pesticides, formaldehyde, and other harsh chemicals. So sleep better with the softest, most breathable bedding from Bowl & Branch. Get 15% off your order when you use the promo code MONEWS at bowlandbranch.com. That is Bowl & Branch, B-O-L-L-A-N-D, branch.com. That promo code MONEWS, M-O-N-E-W-S, for 15%, off your order. All right, everybody. It is Tuesday, November 29th. You're listening to the Mo News Podcast. I'm Mo Shwanunu. And I'm Jill Wagner. This is the place where we bring you just the facts and some analysis. And we read the news so you don't have to. Uh, Jill, I come to you one more day from South Florida. I'll be making my way back up to New York later today. So how is Del Boca Vista? Oh, Seinfeld references. (laughs) Jill, you were called out. I sent it to you yesterday for making a license plate reference without the ass man reference from Seinfeld. It, it was such a, I know, I can't believe I missed it. It's kind of embarrassing, um, but I'm going to make up for it today. You are in Boca Raton, right? Aventura, officially. My mother-in-law oh, okay. hosted Thanksgiving. We were here for a long a weekend, but we, we we did stop in Boca Raton, hence the Del Boca Vista reference. Look, it's you're with in-laws, you're down in Florida. Del Boca yeah. Vista works. Um, how is it going? It was great. It was really nice. You know, it's one of those things where the Floridians have it right this time of year, as in where they live. Um, having looked at the um, weather app and looking at what I'm returning to in New York. So if you can make it down to warm weather in the winter, guys, even for a few days, it completely changes your outlook on life. And we have been following the chronicles of the electric car rental. So how is it going with Oof. that? Well, now you've changed my mood back to darkness, <laughs> Jill. Um, no, so I, I will say this. Uh, since we cover this, and I, I wanted to have this experience, I rented a, um, had a rental car down here, and all they had left was electric cars. And I was like, you know what? I need to engage in this. It's my first electric car experience. Um, and I will say this. If you are buying an electric car and you can charge it in your garage and you have places to charge it, it's probably a different experience than renting an electric car where there's a shortage of chargers and you have to plan your vacation time around charging it. It just gives me anxiety as I like am driving my car being like, Ooh, down to 52%, down to 51%. It's like iPhone battery anxiety, but like without an electric outlet, et cetera, you're trying to find these chargers on the Google maps. There's an app for that. I've heard from many people on Instagram, but it still is anxiety inducing. And a lot of these chargers are very slow. Like, you're getting 1% every couple of minutes. I'm like, what? I'm going to sit in a wall. I've sat in a Walmart parking lot for the better part of three hours this weekend. 
That's very interesting. I mean, look, we were just talking about the new update to Google Maps that yeah. shows you at least if if a quicker, you know, which places are quicker for charging your your car. But look, I think it's good that you tested it out and you'll be more knowledgeable as we cover this stuff. Totally. And and I will say that um, we, you know, we need infrastructure in this country. If California and New York are going to follow through with the plan to ban the sale of gas cars in 2035 and just over a decade, the amount of chargers we need out there and fast chargers is incredible. So if the government is serious about, you know, uh, ending gas emission cars, then they need to be serious about creating roads, chargers, etc. that enable us to all have electric cars. And with that, let's get to some headlines. The protests in China are starting to have a global economic impact. We'll tell you all about that. Some new numbers on how much time Americans are spending by themselves without friends. The Iranian media getting snarky with some members of the U.S. soccer team, which pretty much had a master class on how to handle it. Elon Musk taking aim at Apple in his newest tweets Monday, and it appears Amazon might be the first with a made-for-TV series about the collapse of FTX and Sam Bankman-Fried. Calling Jonah Hill, Jonah Hill. Everyone <laughs> everyone wants him to play Sam Bankman-Fried. I saw some meme or tweet, and it was like, if Jonah Hill is not now prepping to be Sam Bankman-Fried, what is he even doing? <laughs> <laughs> Okay, on to that first story I mentioned. We are continuing to monitor those growing COVID lockdown protests in China and the global economic ramifications of them. Stocks around the world fell sharply Monday after demonstrations against the regime's strict COVID-19 policies prompted investor worry over the outlook for the world's second largest economy. Growing unrest in China has hit investors with a reality check, according to a leading strategist at the Barclays Bank. Investors did have hopes that China would finally reopen fully, but investors now realize that whatever China does about their attempts at zero COVID, it's just not going to be a smooth process. Shares of companies with big production facilities in China were under pressure among them, Apple, whose stock dropped 2.6% after Bloomberg reported that unrest at a factory in China could mean millions fewer iPhone 14s for the year. Yeah, this is a big deal, especially coming around uh, Christmas time, given expectations, given uh, that it just started rolling out a couple months ago. Joe, there's no real equivalent to China in the world economy. China now surpasses all countries as the biggest importer of petroleum. It also manufactured nearly a third. One in three of the world's goods is made in China. In addition to Apple, uh, a number of companies are impacted here. Tesla, John Deere, Volkswagen have all made huge bets on China for their future growth. And so they're likely to suffer some setbacks uh, from this, at least in the short run. And some companies like Apple have made moves gradually uh, to India, Vietnam, in the fallout from COVID and the supply chain. That said, uh, companies are still heavily invested there. And they had high hopes that China was going to start to open up in year three now of the pandemic. But let's remind everyone, these demonstrations are a big deal. They've broken out in at least a dozen cities, and obviously it's hard to get exact data and uh, information out of China, given how uh, the large firewall they have, how the Chinese block, the Chinese government block information from getting out. But we do know of protests and have seen video come out of Beijing, Shanghai, Guangzhou, um, a number of places where people have taken to the streets in saying things as much as we want freedom, down with the regime, really remarkable things, 
This has really intensified since that fire last week uh, in a city in far northwestern China that killed 10 people. It led to vigils across the country. The belief is that uh, these COVID restrictions where the Chinese government literally locks people into apartment buildings if there's a single COVID case, hampered rescue efforts and prevented residents from escaping that fire Earlier this month, there was hope that the Chinese government would ease some of the rules, especially now, again, that we're three years into the pandemic. There were some modest shifts, Jill. Um, There was a sign that the authorities were aware the toll is taking on the economy. They started to loosen some quarantine restrictions for overseas travelers. Uh, They started to cut back a bit on contact tracing and some other measures for Chinese citizens. And so the financial markets, et cetera, were looking at some positive signs and had hopes um, for China opening up, and obviously that is not happening here. Could you even imagine if the U.S. tried to impose anything even close to what they're doing in China? Oh my I God. mean, our lockdowns, even in the beginning of COVID in 2020, were nothing. Not much less compared to China, but even to Europe, where where at least there were there were guards outside on some streets. Here, people refused. Some people refused to even wear a mask. Yeah, I mean, Jill, even just across the border north in Canada, the restrictions, the curfews that were done in Quebec, etc., were nothing, uh, you know, nothing compared to China, but like way more than we were doing here in the U.S. In the U.S., we were complaining about, you know, basic uh, mask protocol. And in China, they're literally locking down tens of millions of people, some of them for months on end, not allowed to even get food. And just on one side note, one positive economic impact from the lockdowns in China is that it's been keeping demand for oil down. Oil prices have actually fallen 35% since June. Oil futures, about $74 a barrel. We haven't seen that since December of 2021. And according to AAA, the national average for a gallon of gas, now $3.55. Yeah, keep in mind, you know, as we mentioned, China, the largest consumer of oil. So if they're all locked down, they're not driving as much, they're not doing as much. Uh, there's a lot of oil that has been pumped and is out there and available to buy. So the price goes down. It's a, you know, all global supply and demand, which is why when we talk about gas prices, it's a very complex thing and people try to oversimplify it here. But literally, a lockdown in a city in China means that gas at the pump for you might be a couple cents less. All right, switching gears, we want to talk about an op-ed from the Washington Post. It is called, Americans are choosing to be alone. Here's why we should reverse that. So uh, this article reads, the COVID-19 pandemic wreaked havoc on our social lives. Cancellations, closures, and fear of a potentially deadly infection led us to hunker down and avoid acquaintances, coworkers, and extended family. Time spent with friends went down. Time spent alone went up. Thanksgiving was not spared. Americans spent 38% less time with friends and extended family over the Thanksgiving weekend in the past two years than they had a decade prior. And now for the even scarier news, our social lives were withering dramatically before COVID-19. Between 2014 and 2019, time spent with friends went down and time spent alone went up by more than it did during the pandemic. Yeah, so we can't just blame the pandemic here. Um, Jill, I I have heard from some introverts who are celebrating being like, no, this is a great time to be an introvert. I can finally be myself. But um, in all honesty, there are larger questions about what this means at, at a societal level. According to the Census Bureau's American Time Use Survey, the amount of time the average American spent with friends was stable at about six and a half hours per week between 2010 and 2013. Then in 2014, about eight years ago, the time spent begins to decline. 
So by 2019, again, pre-COVID, the average American was spending only four hours per week with friends, a nearly 37% decline from just five years previous. So there are a few things they have to blame here. Social media, you saw, you know, you get to peak social media, mobile social media, really around 2012, 2013, political polarization, obviously 2016 election, et cetera, uh, new technology, et cetera, all playing a role here. One thing that the uh, analysts like to note is that smartphone market penetration finally passes 50% in 2014. So finally, a majority of Americans no longer have a flip phone as of 2014. So there's a lot of technological uh, things to blame here. And then, of course, COVID then deepens the trend. During the pandemic, time with friends fell even further. The average American going to two hours and 45 minutes a week with close friends. That, again, is a nearly 60% decline from just a few years previous. And no single group drives this trend. This is pretty even across men, women, white, non-white, rich, poor, urban, rural, married, unmarried, parents, non-parents. And apparently the pattern holds, Jill, for both remote and in-person workers. And then in a different survey showcased in Scott Galloway's latest book, it's called Adrift, America in 100 Charts, 15% of men and 10% of women say that they have no close friends at all. And that means one in seven men and one in 10 women in the United States don't have a single friend. I mean, could you even imagine? Um, the reason that we wanted to talk about this study is because there are serious ramifications when people are not connected to their community and to other people. And we're talking about mental health issues, violent crime, for example. Yeah, you know, it was interesting, Jill, because I heard from a lot of people on Instagram when I posted this earlier on Monday, and they're like, well, social media is also spending time with friends. Like my kids, you know, they talked about how young people right now are spending a lot less time with friends than when we were young, Jill. Um, and they're like, well, they're snapping, they're Snapchatting with their friends, and they're trading TikToks and whatnot. But I guess the larger question we have is, is that equivalent? Is social media time with friends or liking someone's post or commenting really equivalent to quality in-person time. And there are questions on what that means to society, what that means to our ability to understand each other. Because, you know, I think we've all found ourselves much angrier or responding in a different way online to people than when you're in person with somebody. And are you really, are you really your true self on social media? I mean, I, right. I think that that's a real question. So I really feel this story, Mosh, because I actually felt pretty disconnected from friends recently. I moved during the pandemic. I got pregnant and I was still living in kind of pandemic mode and not really doing much socializing while everyone else was back to normal. It's tough to make new friends as an adult. I'd lost touch as well with some of my older friends and, and just wasn't putting in the effort during the pandemic that I used to. And then a friend of mine said something which, which really stuck with me, which was, that you're not making any new friends that you've known for 25 years or 20 years. And like you might make some new friends that are great, but there's something about having history with people. And you just yeah. can't, you know, you just don't have that with new people you meet. And since then, I have made a much bigger effort to reconnect with some of my older friends and also socialize a bit more with some newer friends, I, even talking on the phone a lot more than I used to. And I have to say, I feel much happier in general. Um, but it definitely takes effort and it is easier just to kind of sit in bed in your PJs and scroll Instagram. Mm -hmm. For me though, I usually wind up feeling worse. And so it is interesting that you heard from people who said the opposite. Right. Who were like defending that, you know, yes, I'm not spending time with my friends, but I am engaging with them digitally. 
Um, but the, it is interesting, Jill, because there's so many things. There's this famous book. Uh, I think it started as an article by Robert Putnam called Bowling Alone. And this is kind of pre-internet or early internet in the 90s, talking about um, the loss of the clubs, you know, the get-togethers that people used to have in the 50s and 60s and 70s, and that there was already a loss of connection and loss of community happening even 25 years ago. And it's only been reinforced in the smartphone era, in the social media era. And what does it mean when we're not connecting in person with people anymore? What does it mean when we're literally moving? I mean, this is another trend line, but a related front. We're literally not talking to people who have opposite political opinions anymore. They were literally moving away from areas. You know, if you're red, you move to red areas. If you're blue, you move to blue areas. Um, and what does that mean for sort of the, the the things that weave us together? And then on top of that, you know, there's um, religious attendance, religious service attendance, which has been down now for a couple of decades, or a belief in God. So when you lose these sort of collective things, again, I'm not one a proponent of one thing or another, but it, it, you know, we haven't quite seen this. This is sort of unprecedented in American society. And on top of that, you have this sort of loss of friends. Um, and what does that mean? for how we conduct ourselves, mental health, all of the above. Uh, you know, I, I think that's why some folks are pretty wary about it. This Washington Post piece obviously brought it uh, to the fore most recently. And they talk about, you know, what rising isolation uh, could mean for mental health, more aggressive behavior, violent crime. And that if you look at survey data, Americans do rate activities as more meaningful and more joyful to what you said, Jill, when friends are present. Uh, the survey also talks about kids, right? 15-year-olds, teenagers, yeah. and they're spending so much less time doing things in person with their friends. I say all the time, I'm I'm genuinely happy that I grew up without social media. I, I mm -hmm. just think the pressure of that would have been immense. I am scared for my kids in a lot of ways and have thought a lot about what can I keep the phone away from them? And, you know, what kind of relationship are they going to have with social media? And is that going to be how they're, they, they talk to their friends? Um, so I don't know. I, all in all though, I, I do think it, it is very troubling for society. And I, I don't know how we get out of this, right? Is it going to be the type of thing that in 20 the years metaverse. from now, we're going to look back? <laughs> no, but like, are yeah. we going to look back at, you know, in 20 years or 30 years and, and there will have been a revolt, right? Where yeah. people, where young people are going to say like, the, and we see that now with some social media platforms, like there's what, what is it called? Be, Be real, real or something. Yeah. Um, where, where there is a revolt where people are saying, you know, we, we don't want to just do these TikTok videos or, you know, show these filter pictures of our lives. We want to connect in, in a more real, meaningful way. Or maybe people are just going to turn their phones off in general. I doubt that's going to happen. Um, but you wonder where we're going to end up. How do we develop a healthy relationship with digital and social media, but continue to keep the things that make society function and maintain our relationships? And how do we do it by choice? Um, how do we do it where we're not depending on Tim Cook at Apple or Elon Musk or any of these Mark Zuckerberg to figure this out for us? Um, that'll be very interesting to watch. And Jill, I think it's definitely worth us exploring this further in some interviews on this podcast. Okay, Jill, we have a lot more news to get to on this podcast, including our favorite segment, this speed read. But first, I want to thank our sponsor this week. We have great news as Bull & Branch, the betting and sheet company, is extending their special deal for Mo News listeners past Cyber Monday. 
Bowling Branch took notice last month of the discussion we were having over on the Mo News Instagram page about top sheets versus duvets and is now offering, Bowling Branch is offering all of you 25% off plus free shipping for a limited time with the promo code Mo News. My wife, Alex, and I recently got a set that included pillowcases, a whole bunch of pillowcases. We got a lot of pillows on the bed, duvet cover, uh, top sheet. It's been a game changer. They get even softer after each wash. If you're looking for a gift for yourself or a loved one this holiday season, a reminder that we literally all spend about a third of our lives in bed. So sheets are a big deal. Uh, we have the white sheets, but I think Alex is thinking about getting a set in mist, their mist color as well. So as you do your holiday shopping, this is an opportunity to give a better night's sleep to everyone on your shopping list with bowl and brand sheets. The deal again is 25% off site-wide plus free shipping when you use the promo code MONEWS, M-O-N-E-W-S over at bullandbranch.com. That is B-O-L-L-A-N-D branch, bull and branch, B-O-L-L for bull. Promo code is MONEWS. The offer ends on December 4th. Time now for our speed read from USA Today. What is Giving Tuesday? What to know about the global generosity movement? So, Mosh, today is Giving Tuesday, following two of the biggest shopping days of the year. Giving Tuesday celebrates generously giving back. The organization dedicated to encouraging kindness marks 10 years in 2022 on the first Tuesday after Thanksgiving. The CEO says there is not a person or community in the entire world where generosity is not important. Giving Tuesday was created in 2012. It's um, Again, it was a day to encourage people to do good. It was born and incubated at the 92nd Street Y, and it has since grown to a year-round movement, officially celebrated across more than 85 countries. Yeah, Jill, the estimate is that uh, last year, Americans donated about $2.7 billion on this day. So this is a huge day uh, to give to a charitable cause, uh, that is important to you that you think is doing well and doing good in the world. Jill, you you know, we've been talking a bit about Giving Tuesday and we wanted to make a point of mentioning it. You wanted to make a point of mentioning it on this podcast. Yes, because I have a hot take on Giving Tuesday. My <laughs> I feel very strongly that Giving Tuesday should not be the Tuesday after Cyber Monday. It should be the Tuesday before Thanksgiving. Interesting. It, okay, and the reason is is that at this point uh, this point we've already had Black Friday, we've already had Thanksgiving which has become a big shopping day, uh, Small Business Saturday, now Cyber Monday. No one has any money left, okay? Right. No, no, it's, it's actually, you're right. We've spent almost estimated about $30 billion in the past okay. four days. Instead, yeah. it should be the Tuesday before Thanksgiving when everyone is feeling like they're in a good mood, you're mm. feeling probably pretty generous, maybe excited to see family. You're If you're not excited to see your family, you're still probably excited to have a nice four-day, five-day weekend. You're feeling so grateful. So I think that, yes, I think that these Whatever it is, these nonprofits, the charities would do a lot better if Giving Tuesday was that Tuesday before Thanksgiving. Listen, I think that you you're onto something here, and I think you need to 
start the movement. We can start the movement here. <laughs> How do we do that? I guess. <laughs> MoveGivingTuesday.com. I don't know. Um, I feel like as journalists who just report on things, we're not really activists, so we're not good at this. <laughs> but I think this is a great idea. We so should some, start just, yeah. you know what it is. We should just like, we should do a story and just ask people like, you know, there's been some feedback about Moving Giving Tuesday, oh, like as yes. if that this was a thing already and see what people think. And then some the headlines would be like, yeah, exactly. Critics are argue. Critics. Uh, <laughs> yeah, guys, if, if a code code for media organizations that sometimes have an agenda or are trying to push a certain story is critics say, some people are saying, and you're like, well, who are the critics? You're like, well, some guy on Twitter, some random person on Twitter. That was the person who suggested it, who may or may not be linked to Jill's Twitter account. Anyway, any <laughs> charity can feel free to yes. steal my idea and see yes. what happens. Go for uh, it. Go, you know, make Giving Tuesday that Tuesday before Thanksgiving and see if you do any better. I like that idea. All right, you guys, uh, you have 300 and about 60 days to make it happen. Monkeypox will now be known as MPOX, the World Health Organization has announced after complaints over racist and stigmatizing language linked to the virus's name. The old term will be used alongside the new one for about a year before being phased out. Human monkeypox was first identified in 1970. Um, it was discovered in captive monkeys. Jill, all I can think about with this new name, Mpox, is Mbop, Mpox. <laughs> that's, that's how I read it initially. Monkeypox is Mpox. Mpox, um, Mpox, Mpox. Um, no, but I, I know that, listen, having seen the symptoms and the people suffering from Mpox, I, I don't mean to make light of it, but I just, like, when I saw this headline from the World Health Organization, which, by the way, now after three years of uh, COVID, I'm like, oh, God, World Health Organization headline. What is it? I'm like, oh, they're renaming something. Okay, I can handle that. Um, and, you know, it was interesting because I guess they're trying to make a point here of creating non-controversial, non-stigmatizing names for diseases. I mean, it's one of the reasons they went with the Greek alphabet for the variants, alpha, beta, delta, because initially it was like, oh, this is the South African variant. Oh, it started in Wuhan. And they didn't the want the Brazilian it. variant. Yeah, exactly. So they went to all of it, and even in the Greek letters, they were going to avoid C X I, the uh, Greek letter, because of course it's also the name of the Chinese leader Xi. So they were, you know, they were trying to be very politically correct here in how they name things. At the same time, there's a number of other viruses that still have the kind of geographic origin or the animal origin, you have the MERS, the Middle East Respiratory Virus. You have Ebola, which is named for a river in Africa, the Rift Valley Fever, uh, which is also in uh, Africa. Of course, we still refer to the 1918 flu as the Spanish flu. Um, so, you know, it's interesting that they're, they're making this move here. You know, some people are like, is this really World Health Organization? Is this really what we should be working on these days? And they're like, well, it's among the things that we've prioritized. And in the Spanish flu, I remember I did a little research. It, the Spanish flu didn't even come from Spain. I think it actually came from America. Yeah, that's the thing is like when you actually look at the origin of things, um, you know, oftentimes even those variants, you're like, well, it was the South Africans were annoyed last year when they discovered Omicron for like, oh, the South African variant. They're like, no, we discovered it. It doesn't mean we're from it's from here. We just happen to have the labs to be able to find this variant. So I think that, you know, these they have found now that geographically linked virus names are just a headache for them. Wait, so back to 
M-pox or M-pox. M-pox. Is it M-pox. M-pox? Is it M-pox or is it M-pox? I think it's M-pox. I think it's intentionally <laughs> M-pox, but they made, it's one word. It's M-P-O-X. So that's why I was like, M-pox. It can't be M-pox. It's got to be M-pox. Uh, we'll reach out to the World, World Health Organization and, and fact check this tomorrow. We are such 90s kids. <laughs> that's, that's the moral of the story. Oh, by the way, I'll tell you, totally, total tangent here. I played on a, in a softball game last year with one of the Hanson brothers who, uh, I forget, I think the, the middle one, he has like, like he has like 10 kids and lives in Oklahoma. Um, what? And he's still like recording. And he played in this like celebrity, I mean, albeit, I think we were kind of C-list celebrities, but I, I got to be on the team. So I was on the team with him. And everyone who, who was like raised in the 90s was like, oh my God, that's Hanson. That's whatever Hanson. That's a Hanson brother. And then some people are like, who? I'm like, Mba. And they're like, oh, I know who that is. You can't hear that song and not smile. It's just yeah. like a good mood song. From NBC News, world's largest active volcano, Moana Loa, erupts in Hawaii. This is the volcano's first eruption since 1984, according to the U.S. Geological Survey. Officials say lava flows were contained within the summit area and are not threatening downslope communities. The most recent eruption followed weeks of warnings from officials that an eruption was possible, given a recent spike in earthquakes at the volcano's summit, and that residents of the Big Island should be prepared to evacuate. Yeah, we're going to watch this day by day. Um, Obviously, if you've watched some of these volcano eruptions around the world in the past few years, sort of unpredictable. Uh, Southwest Airlines on Monday was not operating from the main airport there on the Big Island because of the eruption. The FAA right now is closely monitoring the uh, eruption and will issue air traffic advisories, they say. Jill, we should know this is happening on the Big Island, officially known as Hawaii, which is about 4,000 square miles, which is just slightly smaller than Connecticut for context-wise, but only has a population of about 200,000. So most of the population is uh, along the coast, so they are able to monitor in case they need to evacuate. It has erupted a bunch of times, basically if you average it out, about once every six years, but this is the most significant eruption since 1984. Uh, Back then, it caused a whole bunch of air pollution across the state. Uh, The lava flow destroyed utility poles, power lines. So we'll see what happens here. Um, Our our good friend, uh, Mike Zussel, apparently was set to fly there today, uh, Jill. So we might have some on-the-ground Mo News reporting if he ends up going there. Friend of the pod, Mike Zussel. Friend of the pod. (laughs) He's a good friend of the pod because he is such a world traveler that I feel like chances are he is somewhere that news is happening. He, I don't know how many of you have uh, friends like Mike Zussel out there, but Mike has gone to more than 100 countries. He's like made it his goal to go to every country in the world. So uh, like Jill said, there's a good percent chance that if news is happening somewhere, Mike might be there. Okay, this from Time Magazine. Ahead of today's World Cup match between Iran and the U.S., Iranian reporters on Monday pelted a series of political questions at Americans' team leaders. The U.S. head coach and the team captain fielded questions about government relations between the two countries, as well as their personal opinions on the subject in a presser that veered sharply away from routine pre-match discussion. It came up to the men's team's social media used an alternate Iranian flag for a day without the insignia of the Islamic regime. We mentioned this yesterday. Um, So that was to support the protests in the country. The team restored the flag after protests Sunday, but that did not stop the questions. Captain Tyler Adams responded thoughtfully, emphasizing that they were focusing on the upcoming match and didn't have a hand in decisions made by U.S. soccer officials or the U.S. government. We just want to play a bit of one of the exchanges. 
First of all, you say you support the Iranian people, but you're pronouncing our country's name wrong. Our country is named Iran, not Iran. Please, once and for all, let's get this clear. Second of all, um, are you okay to be representing a country that has so much discrimination against black people in its own borders? And uh, we saw the Black Lives Matter movement uh, over the past few years. Are you okay to be representing the US? Meanwhile, there's so much discrimination happening against black people in America. My apologies on uh, the mispronunciation of your country. Um, yeah, that being said, you know, there's discrimination uh, everywhere you go. Um, you know, one thing that I've learned, especially from living abroad in the past years and uh, having to fit in in different cultures and, and kind of assimilate into different cultures, um, is that in the U.S. we're, we're continuing to make progress uh, every single day. I mean, Moshe, that's as good of an answer as you're going to get. I mean, it was a pretty snarky question from that reporter and a very thoughtful answer from the player. Yeah, I mean, our first thought was like, oh, man, the um, Iranian regime really has their state media reporters deflecting uh, and trying to throw uh, noise back at the American players. And that wasn't the only question. I mean, you talked about them being pelted, Jill. Apparently, um, one reporter from Iran asked them, uh, due to the high rise of inflation and economic problems, there's no support for your team within the U.S. And in response, the coach was like, actually, 20 million people watched our game. I don't know what you're talking about. And then another Iranian reporter asked the coach um, why he hasn't pressured the U.S. government to remove naval ships in the Persian Gulf near Iran, to which the coach was like, yeah, that's not really my thing. Do you want to ask about the game tomorrow? Um, but I thought Adams handled it really well. You know, he immediately apologizes for mispronouncing the country's name. Uh, he offered his perspective. And by the way, he's African-American, but grew up in a white family uh, and says, you know, there's discrimination wherever you go. We make progress. Um, it's important to be educated, just like I just got educated about the pronunciation of your country. It's a process. Um, and so I thought that was really notable. Uh, it was interesting. At one point, the coach was asked again about the uh, changing of the flag on social media. And he's like, listen, I have nothing to do with it. I apologize if you're offended. Can we please, you know, the, are you interested in talking about the game? Uh, but it's interesting how, um, and I, maybe it's not surprising, but how political even this pregame press conference got. And Jill, for those interested in actually watching the game, uh, this will dictate who moves on to the next round. It's a crucial game, U.S.-Iran, today, 2 p.m. Eastern time. And Mosh, where where is the World Cup playing? Where can you watch it? Uh, Fox has the rights to it. So check out Fox at 2 p.m. Eastern today. Asking for a friend. I, <laughs> I of course, have been watching. <laughs> <laughs> All right. From the New York Times, Elon Musk takes on Apple's power, setting up a clash. What is going on here at Tim Cook? Elon Musk tweeted Monday to Tim Cook, the chief executive of Apple, igniting a fight between the world's richest man and the world's most valuable public company. In a series of tweets over 15 minutes, Musk asked if Apple hates free speech in America for mostly stopping advertising on Twitter. He also accused Apple of threatening to withhold Twitter from its app store, a move that would limit some new users from downloading the app. Musk said the action would amount to censorship with no explanation from Apple for why Twitter would be blocked. He added that Apple had also reduced its advertising spending on Twitter. Yeah, Jill, I uh, actually have been refreshing, waiting for Apple to put out a statement on this as we record this on uh, Monday night. Uh, Musk has been poised for a while now to confront Apple since taking over Twitter. He does know how to draw attention to himself, bring people to the platform. And it comes at a time where his business plan is predicated on shifting its revenue model 
from advertising to subscription sales. Now, any new subscription revenue, if you own an app or you've ever bought something from an app, Apple takes 30% cut of all app transactions. And it's actually helped them make tens of billions of dollars through the years. It's led to legal fights. They face criticism. Uh, They were actually sued last year by Epic, the uh, game maker. And now that case is an appeals court. Uh, A question as to whether Apple, because it effectively controls the app market, should be allowed to take 30% here. And so there's that factor. And then there's the whole... Apple requiring companies to create a safe experience if they want their apps listed in the App Store. So obviously, with some of the latest moves by Elon here, there are questions as to whether Apple's doing something there. Either way, as of our recording of this podcast, Apple has not reacted to Elon's threats and tweets so far. So it'll be very interesting to see you know, what Apple is planning here and what they may have sent or told Elon, which he hasn't revealed on Twitter yet. I'm glad that you mentioned the 30% cut because I don't think a lot of people realize that. I mean, they're and they're basically arguing that money is going so that they can have this app store, as you mentioned, and, and make it to, a safe to pay for experience. the app store. Yes. And the truth is, it, it's such a monopoly. I mean, Google, I guess Google has also a, a an Google app. takes a cut as well. Google yeah. takes a cut, but it's just really, the, they're the only game in town. You know, it's not like there's all these options. If you have an app, you you have to kind of be on the app store. So there's no real way around it. Um, and, you know, Apple gets a really good rap for you, you, their privacy stance and all that. Tim Cook has taken on Mark Zuckerberg and, and really gone out of their way to kind of be like, we are the good guys versus the bad guys. But Apple's business model doesn't rely on data, but it does rely on on this, right? And, and the 30% cut, it all comes back to the consumer, right? So you may think, oh, well, it's just taking 30% from Twitter or, or whomever else. But no, like Spotify, for example, also has had issues with Apple because Apple takes a cut of, of those subscriptions as well. We're paying for the users pay for that. There's these businesses aren't like, oh, let's you know, no problem. And, it's just and there's small businesses and there's small businesses that try to make money online on mobile, and Apple and Google is taking cut from them. I mean, even creators like something like on Instagram, like when you when I do IG lives for those of you who follow me on Instagram, and you buy a badge for like a dollar to support the Mo News account or whatever, I get seventy cents of that. Right, thirty percent goes to Apple or Google depending on what phone you have. So um, individually, and I'm not just making the case for myself here, but it's it's an issue across the board, and it'll be very interesting to see how this legal fight goes down for Epic Games. And frankly, it's caught the attention of Washington. Elizabeth Warren and some other senators want to have hearings on this uh, and you know, basically are saying that this is a monopoly by these companies and we need to we need to crack down on this. We should add that Phil Schiller, a longtime Apple executive who helps oversee its app store, recently deleted his Twitter account when Musk reinstated former President Trump to the platform. Cook continues to use Twitter and used it last week to wish his followers a happy Thanksgiving. And Musk tweeted last week about building his own phone if Apple and Google booted Twitter from their app stores. I mean, does... Does Musk not have enough on his plate here? Now he wants to get into the phone business. He's got to save the company. You know, I don't know if people remember this. Zuckerberg tried to build a Facebook phone a few years back. Uh, it didn't didn't quite work out. None of us uh, have a Facebook phone these days, so people kind of see that. Amazon tried to create a phone too, didn't didn't they? Yeah, I, I think a whole bunch of people did, and ultimately Google and and Apple have been successful here. Uh, Microsoft has a phone, but really, um, that's a tough. Thing. And so I think people viewed the Musk thing as an as an empty threat. I'm waiting to hear from Apple on this uh, to find out what they actually told Elon Musk and uh, to cause him to go on this tweet barrage on Monday. 
All right, and from Variety, Amazon's ordered a miniseries based on the collapse of the crypto exchange FTX from the directors behind Marvel's Avengers franchise, according to Variety. Joe and Anthony Russo, the brothers who directed Avengers Infinity War and Avengers Endgame, as well as Netflix's The Gray Man, they'll be producing the eight-episode series through their production company. It's going to be based on insider reporting from multiple unnamed journalists who've covered the FTX saga and its founder and former CEO, Sam Bankman-Fried. Amazon hoping to put that show into production in spring of 2023. Yeah, I'm looking forward to that. I'm looking forward to finding out if it's Seth Rogen, Michael Sarah, or Jonah Hill, paging Jonah Hill, <laughs> um, for Sam Bankman-Fried. Um, speaking of FTX, by the way, in, in real world, uh, not just Amazon TV world, uh, we saw the latest domino fall from that, Jill, on Monday. Uh, obviously, FTX was a $33 billion collapse. Uh, we're still trying to get our head around it. So are regulators. But the cryptocurrency lender BlockFi filed for Chapter 11 on Monday following FTX into bankruptcy. It really shows the contagion effects that the failure of FTX has unleashed on the overall crypto market. BlockFi's role was to lend money to customers using its crypto holdings as collateral. Well, that's not so big right now, especially when you had a lot of the FTT, the FTX crypto. And so BlockFi blamed its Chapter 11 filing on who else? FTX. Uh, FTX's uh, trading firm uh, apparently defaulted on a $680 million they owed to BlockFi. And so apparently BlockFi's creditors, top 10 creditors alone are owed close to $1.2 billion. So there is a a whole bunch here in terms of financial ramifications. And Jill, uh, tomorrow I'm looking forward, I can't even believe this is going to happen, but as of right now, Sam Bankman-Fried will be doing an interview with Andrew Ross Sorkin at his annual DealBook conference. I'll be there reporting on it for Mo News uh, tomorrow in New York City. I can't believe he's going to convince his lawyers to let him do this, but I don't think Sam Bankman-Fried is listening to anybody these days. So we might hear more. Uh, expect some headlines on all of this in the next 24 hours. He's given so many interviews that you're almost like, what else could he possibly say? Um, yeah. But obviously, there's still so much about what happened and how this all went down that we don't know. And what's going to happen legally? Um, ultimately, you know, Justice Department and the feds are on top of this. The company is based in the Bahamas. He lives in the Bahamas. So there's a lot of interesting questions here. And this story, you know, even by the time the Amazon series comes out, I imagine we won't have the full picture yet. All right. Um, a big thank you to everyone for listening to the Mo News Daily Podcast. Follow us and subscribe so you don't miss an episode and review us in the App Store so that we can continue to grow. Really appreciate the reviews. You guys are uh, taking a moment to file on whatever app you're listening to us on. So grateful for that. Uh, happy Giving Tuesday. Make sure to give to your favorite cause. It goes a long way for these nonprofits out there. Um, and then uh, over here, if you don't follow us on Instagram, please go follow me over there, over at, at Mosh, at M-O-S-H-E-H. -H. And we'll see everyone back here tomorrow. Look, this Giving Tuesday, you should give as if it's last Tuesday. Put yourself yeah, uh, into that mind Jill, frame. J Jill, throwback. Yes. <laughs> Think about how you were, how grateful you were feeling last Tuesday. Forget about how much you spent on things for the past five days and give that amount of money. All right. Bye, everybody.